Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. I would like to welcome back our listeners to part two of a Grand Rounds presentation on January 29th, 2019 at Rusk Rehabilitation Institute at NYU Langone Health, in which Dr. Mitchell Elkind discussed occult atrial fibrillation. He views occult AFib as the most prevalent, and from a neurologist's perspective, the one most difficult to detect or diagnose because the episodes are so brief, yet it is important to find it. Let's jump to another topic, another one of my favorite topics, which is occult atrial fibrillation. Uh, and just to give you a very brief history of atrial fibrillation and stroke, um, a lot of this story started back with C. Miller Fisher, who uh, many of us consider the founder of stroke neurology, at least modern stroke neurology. Uh, he was at Mass General Hospital. I was fortunate as a uh, resident to uh, have him still there in an emeritus capacity, and he would round with us every week. And, uh, you know, he, he was a great diagnostician and, and very patient and um, would, would, you know, drill down to the smallest detail of every case. And he tells a story about how back in the uh, 70s or so, when he, or maybe even earlier, when um, he was on, you know, rounds, one week they had three patients in a row come in with big hemispheric strokes, you know, MCA infarcts, hemiplegia, aphasia, and so forth. And all three of those patients had atrial fibrillation. And so he said, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if maybe, you know, the AFib causes a clot to form, go to the brain, and causes stroke. And nobody believed it. At that time, people thought that strokes were caused by spasm in the vessels. So nobody, nobody bought that. Um, but, you know, he stuck with it. And, of course, eventually everybody uh, agreed with that. And he used to do a little clinical trials at the time with anticoagulants. Coumadin was, was available then. And so he would keep a, uh, a green marble and a red marble in his, you know, white coat pocket, and when a patient would come in with a stroke in AFib, he would reach into his pocket and take out one of the marbles, you know, it was like the matrix. And if you had uh, the red marble, you went on Coumadin. If you had the green marble, you know, you went on aspirin, I guess. And uh, that's how he did a clinical trial there. So things, of course, have progressed since then. Uh, there were randomized trials, you know, blinded and so forth that proved warfarin was better than aspirin. Uh, a little bit later, we began to accept uh, this idea that you didn't have to have AFib all the time, but paroxysmal AFib can cause stroke as well. Um, and now, of course, we have these new oral anticoagulants, which have a lower risk profile and um, uh, other ways of detecting risk. So if you talk to the cardiologists, they divide AFib up into these different categories, paroxysmal, persistent, and permanent, and so forth. I would say, though, that from the neurologist's perspective, maybe from physiatrist's perspective as well, it's the occult AFib that's um, you know, most relevant. Uh, and this is not a, you know, a term that, that they use, uh, but this is basically AFib that's difficult to diagnose. It's difficult to detect. Um, and so that's because the episodes may be so brief. And yet it's very important to find AFib because it's the one stroke treatment that we, it's the one stroke subtype that we know anticoagulation uh, works for. 
and it has a very robust 70% um, relative risk reduction. So it's important to find it so that we can treat patients appropriately. And yet, it's hard to diagnose because AFib can come and go. Often patients don't know they have it until they show up with a stroke. And even in people in whom it, it does occur, it's, uh, it can be present uh, very infrequently, less than 10% of the time. There's good evidence from these studies that involve implanted cardiac devices like pacemakers and AICDs that are continuously monitoring heart rhythm, um, that uh, there, there's a temporal disconnect between when people are in atrial fibrillation and when they have a stroke. So in this analysis called trends of 1,600 patients with one of these devices, um, about 10% of them had a history of a previous thromboembolic event, and they had no known AFib, they weren't on anticoagulants and so forth, and patients with a prior history of thromboembolism were more likely to show evidence of occult atrial fibrillation. And um, the AFib again occurred less than 10% of days of monitoring. And often it occurred more than 30 days after the monitoring had begun. So just you know, one or a couple of days of monitoring is not necessarily going to pick it up. Um, Many of these studies didn't even look at atrial fibrillation per se. They looked at what they called high atrial rate events, just very rapid uh, atrial beating. And um, uh, they found that in patients who had um, uh, a history of these um, small, very minor, or even you know, subclinical atrial tachyrrhythmias, people didn't have any symptoms from it, they were more likely to go on and have strokes and uh, systemic embolism. So all this data essentially tells us that even a little bit of AFib poses a risk of stroke, and we don't know if there is a lower limit really or not. Uh, it shows that there's no clear temporal relationship between the AFib and stroke. You can have your stroke today, be found to have AFib several months from now. The longer we monitor, the more likely we are, likely we are to find the AFib. And of course, if we find it, it uh, determines how we treat it. So asking people about their symptoms is really not helpful at all. You know, people who have palpitations, maybe a third of them have AFib, but they can also be a normal sinus rhythm or have other uh, minor arrhythmias as well. And so we need some kind of monitoring. And we know from various guidelines that the longer we monitor, the more likely we are to detect it. But the, the studies that suggested that were, were limited. They weren't really head-to-head -head comparison trials of different paradigms of monitoring. So there were a couple of trials, though, that did attempt to do that. Uh, one was called the EMBRACE study. This was done in Canada. They took 570 patients with a history of cryptogenic stroke, or TIA, within the past six months. Um, and <clears throat> only a small percentage of them underwent a transesophageal echo. Uh, but they randomized patients to either get standard 24 hours of monitoring, which is what the guidelines would recommend, or 30 days of um, an externally worn uh, monitor. And they looked for the likelihood of detecting atrial fibrillation. The outcome was not stroke. It was whether they could detect AFib by 90 days in these stroke patients. And they found that using the 30-day monitor, they were much more likely to find AFib than with just the 24 hours of monitoring. Um, you know, under the paradigm of the 24 hours of monitoring, if somebody had uh, palpitations or some other reason to get additional monitoring, they could have gotten that done as well. But just, you know, monitoring people, whether they had symptoms or not, was much more effective. Uh, and it actually led to a change in treatment. As you can see down here, about uh, three times as many patients ended up 
on anticoagulants uh, who had the 30-day monitor done. So that was the first study, compared 30 days to um, 24 hours. The second study was called the Crystal AF study. This was uh, supported by Medtronic. And they um, used a different device, which is called the uh, Reveal XT device. Now we have something called the Link device. Many of you are probably familiar with it. Very small, about the size of a, um, a thumb drive, actually smaller. And um, it can be implanted in the chest wall and stay there for up to three years after somebody has a stroke. The batteries last for three years. So they enrolled 440 unexplained stroke patients, no history of AFib again. They had to be at least age 40, um, and they were on average 61. So they were younger than the patients in the other trial. And all of them had a TEE, which would have ruled out other potential causes of stroke. Um, and they were compared, they, they had a comparison of standard monitoring, again, essentially the 24 hours, versus this potentially three years long continuous monitoring with this device. And their outcome, again, was not stroke, but the detection of AFib. And what they showed was, again, not surprisingly, people who had the implanted cardiac monitor were much more likely to have AFib detected. By three years, it was a tenfold difference. 30% of those with the monitor were found to have AFib versus 3% of those with standard care. So that was, um, you know, all of these were highly statistically significant. Again, they didn't look at recurrent stroke as an outcome. That would have required a much larger study than the 440 patients they had. But you can see here that there was a trend towards a lower stroke rate in the patients who had the monitor placed than, than the others. So that suggested that there, uh, you know, that there could have been a benefit. So now we have 30 days versus, or let's say uh, we have, my left hand, we have um, 24 hours versus 30 days, and then we have 24 hours versus three years. What we don't still have is a comparison of 30 days to three years. So that's why guidelines haven't really changed to say you have to do one or the other of these. Nobody's saying you have to put in a three-year device. Um, but obviously, that's uh, something that a lot of people are doing and, and considering. The guidelines haven't changed on that point yet. Um, the um, uh, detection of AFib does change management. The other issue about the guidelines is nobody's yet proven. These studies were designed to detect AFib. They weren't designed to reduce stroke, and that's why guidelines haven't changed, because they showed that they're better to, in detecting AFib, but haven't proven yet the reduction in stroke risk. So it's a little bit of, you know, guideline um, um, orthodoxy in terms, of, in terms of that, if you will. So we still don't know which is better, 30 days or longer, or what kind of device to use and whether or not it definitely reduces risk of stroke. So those remain unanswered questions. Now, the other point that um, I'll make in, in the last few minutes is that, you know, this is a pretty good number. 30% of these unknown stroke patients have um, atrial fibrillation by three years. But that means that 70% don't. So I would raise the question, what else might be out there? And so that brings us to this other entity which is something that uh, we've been um, exploring recently, which is this concept of atrial cardiopathy. So I mentioned before there's no clear temporal relationship between the AFib and the stroke. Uh, it's also known that people can have ectopy and then go on to have a stroke without having frank atrial fibrillation. There are also genetic mutations that are associated with the development of AFib, and those patients can have strokes 
before they manifest the AFib. And you can even have electromechanical dissociation between what you see on the EKG and what the atrium is doing. So the EKG may look like normal sinus rhythm, and yet when they do uh, flow studies, the flow pattern is consistent with the, with the atrium being in fibrillation. And so all of these points suggest that that simple idea we have, you know, of the atrial uh, fibrillation, the, the atrium fibrillating like a bag of worms, you know, that we learn about in medical school, and that allows stasis and blood clots to form, and then that goes to the brain. That may be an outdated way of thinking about it. And there may be other mechanisms by which atrial dysfunction can lead to uh, stroke, as and you can see some of them listed here. And so, you know, we might suggest that that occult atrial fibrillation that we just discussed, you know, that's detected after a long-term monitoring, may be kind of the, uh, uh, the uh, part of the iceberg that's under the surface, you know, with known AFib being the, um, the top of the iceberg that we can see. But there may be a, a number of other patients who have atrial dysfunction without atrial fibrillation who uh, are also at risk of stroke or have had strokes. And perhaps there are other ways to detect that other than waiting, you know, six months or three years for them to develop the atrial fibrillation. You know, there may be biomarkers indicative of left atrial dysfunction that would allow us to target those patients for anticoagulation earlier. And there are several biomarkers here. And just to touch on these, one is simply other forms of atrial arrhythmias. So uh, Human Kamel, who's uh, at Cornell, so another New York City person, if you ever have a chance to have him come here, I would recommend that. Uh, he and I have been working closely on this area together, and he did a great study several years ago in the uh, HCUP data set, which is a large administrative data set, millions of patients uh, throughout the state of California. It's basically all the admissions to the hospitals in California. <clears throat> and he just looked in one year, and he looked at patients who had paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardia, which is a, a different arrhythmia of the atrium. It's not irregular, it's regular and fast. Um, and so these were people with PSVT, but no history of atrial fibrillation, and they were at twice the risk of having stroke um, uh, compared to those um, without any at all. Uh, so this suggests that other arrhythmias may carry risk. I mentioned before, ectopy, first-degree AV block, there's evidence, uh, can cause stroke. You can also use the EKG to measure the contraction of the left uh, atrium um, in lead V1, which sits over the left atrium. This terminal portion of the wave, the deflection below the median, uh, reflects the force of contraction of the left atrium. So you can measure that using calipers, and uh, we did that in our study. We had a, um, actually she was an undergraduate at the time, now she's a medical student, Mad Madeline Hunter. And she uh, went back and measured the P-wave terminal force in all our EKGs from the Northern Manhattan study and found that those who had abnormalities in that measure were uh, more likely to go on and have stroke, and specifically stroke that was otherwise unexplained. And Human has similarly shown this in, in other cohorts as well. And then there are blood biomarkers like NT-proBNP, which is a marker of atrial and cardiac stress or cardiac troponin. And so many studies, including the um, uh, uh, cardiovascular health study, have shown that elevated levels of uh, BNP are associated with an increased risk of stroke, even after accounting for atrial fibrillation. You can look at echo markers. Uh, it's an interesting fact that most of the clots that come from the heart in patients with atrial fibrillation are actually coming not from the 
fibrillating atrium itself, but from the left atrial appendage. Cardiologists say that 95 plus percent of the clots originate in the appendage. And so, um, and the appendage is not a uh, single uniform uh, entity either. There are several different shapes that it can take. Um, and those include this chicken wing morphology, or it can look like a cactus or a windsock, cauliflower. So there are these colorful, colorful terms that the cardiologists use to describe these. Um, and Shadi Yagi, who was a fellow with us, who's now with Brown, he's actually joining you guys. He's going to be at Lutheran in Brooklyn um, starting, I think, in the spring. Uh, he's done a lot of work in this area as well. And he and others have shown that certain morphologies of the uh, left atrial appendage, so the chicken wing, for example, carries lower risk than these other shapes. So you can imagine cauliflower. If you think of a you know, piece of cauliflower, it's got all these nooks and crannies in it. It's called the you know, English muffin uh, appendage or something. But it's, it's possible that those, uh, you know, that's where clots can form and, and then go to the brain, of course. So there's evidence to support that idea. So all of this, though, has led us to kind of change our paradigm of how atrial fibrillation causes stroke. The traditional paradigm, you know, if you will, would say that you could have vascular risk factors like high blood pressure and diabetes. Those can lead to stroke through, you know, atherosclerosis and, and lots of potential mechanisms. Um, they can also lead to an abnormal atrial substrate that can lead to AFib, and then that can lead to stroke. But we would suggest that this abnormal atrial substrate may directly cause stroke as well. And uh, that's, again, the bottom of the, um, the iceberg there. So what can we do about it? Well, there's evidence that anticoagulation could help some of these patients. So Dr. Moore from Columbia did a, a large trial uh, many years ago looking at warfarin, right, Coumadin versus aspirin for patients with stroke, right? Because back, like when I was a resident, we thought every patient with stroke should just get anticoagulated. Dr. Moore said, you know, we have to test this hypothesis. He did the WARS trial. And disappointingly, it showed no benefit to anticoagulating patients who didn't have atrial fibrillation, essentially. So the field, you know, generally moved away from anticoagulating those patients. There were some other trials that were negative as well. So that's why we say now the standard of care for stroke prevention is aspirin, not anticoagulation. But there were blood samples stored from that trial, from the time that patients were enrolled in the trial. And so many years later, we were able to go back and measure levels of NT pro-BNP, right, a measure of cardiac dysfunction. And what we found was that patients who had um, low levels of NT pro-BNP, not terribly low, but lower levels, saw no benefit from uh, anticoagulation, whereas those whose levels were very elevated, there was a, a benefit from being on anticoagulation versus aspirin. So this suggests that for some patients with unexplained stroke with elevated biomarkers, there may be a benefit to anticoagulation. In the intervening years, of course, we've also got these newer uh, oral anticoagulants, right, like apixaban and rivaroxaban, um, dabigatran, and so forth. These are all safer than warfarin. They have a much lower risk of intracranial hemorrhage in particular. And so uh, potentially it's time to reassess whether anticoagulation may be of benefit for patients with unexplained stroke. And so that's why we're doing the Arcadia trial. So this is a joint effort between me, Human, who I mentioned at uh, Cornell, uh, Will Longstreth and Dave Turchwell, who are both at University of Washington. Um, and this is a federally funded trial. 
Uh, it's a, a multi-center trial. We have about 120 sites participating, and uh, we're essentially looking at patients who have unexplained stroke as well as markers of atrial cardiopathy, and then they get randomized to a Pixaban, one of these NOACs, versus aspirin to prevent recurrent stroke. And uh, the markers that we're looking at include um, that P-wave measure from the EKG, right? So every patient has an EKG. Uh, we do collect a blood sample and measure NT-proBNP, and we're also looking at the echocardiogram for left atrial size. If they have any one of those three measures that meet the threshold that we pre-specified, then they can be randomized in the trial, and our primary outcome is stroke of any type. Um, and as I said, we have um, uh, 120 sites. We have about 150 patients randomized so far. We've screened about 550, and of those, you know, the, five, the 150 have had the biomarkers. We expected about 25% would have the atrial cardiopathy, and that's about what we're finding. Um, and uh, we're actually including additional sites. NYU is participating in this trial as well. So if you happen to see anybody, you know, in your rehab service with an unexplained stroke, you might give a thought to uh, contacting the, uh, the stroke team and, and see if the patient might be eligible. And we have some ancillary studies planned as well. And some of you may be aware that recently there were results that came out from two other trials looking at these patients with unexplained stroke, Navigate and Respectesis, one published, one presented, and hopefully will be published soon. These studies found no benefit for anticoagulating patients with unexplained stroke, but what we, what we would argue is that they were looking at unselected patients. They were taking all comers. And we think that it makes much more sense to focus on the group of patients, again, who have this evidence of this atrial dysfunction. That may be where we see a benefit, just like we do in atrial fibrillation. Um, and so, again, I think we're moving away from that idea of ESIS being some kind of unitary thing. It mean, ESIS basically means, I don't know what happened. So if you find a PFO, you kind of know what happened. If you find atrial fibrillation, you know what happened. If you find this atrial cardiopathy, maybe we would say you know what happened and uh, you know how to treat it. Um, and so hopefully that's why we'll be able to continue our trial. If we turn out to be correct and this, this entity of atrial cardiopathy is a real target for treatment, then potentially it would lend itself to um, you know, primary prevention. You don't have to wait for people to have a stroke. If you detect it soon enough, you would treat them earlier. Maybe we'd be using uh, atrial appendage closure devices, which we didn't talk about, and uh, other types of precision medicine. So my argument is that um, in the future, neurologists won't care about AFib because other markers will replace uh, the long-term monitoring that we do. You know, what good is it if you have to put in a device and wait a year for the AFib to pop up? You want to treat them when they had their stroke or you know, when they're in rehab with, with you guys. Um, and so that's what you know, we're trying to do. So maybe the era of atrial cardiopathies will come soon. These are just some acknowledgments. Some of the data I mentioned is relevant to the Northern Manhattan study. And, uh, and the work that I've done with uh, Will, David, and, and Humane as well, and funding from the NIH, and BMS Pfizer's providing drug for our trial, and Roche some laboratory support. So uh, sorry if I went over. I guess we're right at 1 o'clock. So uh, thank you very much for your time. Take any questions. Yes? Uh, is there a durational contribution of AFib to stroke? Mm. To say that if you have permanent AFib, you are more likely to have a stroke than if you have one of these very hard to find ones that you have to look for years for? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, the answer isn't uh, definitely known yet. Um, 
although I think we're accumulating more evidence that there is a phenomenon of burden of AFib. So whether it's permanent or not, the more AFib you have, if, some studies anyway have shown that there is an increase in risk. Some studies haven't. So uh, I keep, you know, like our idea of this atrial cardiopathy maybe is a little bit dependent on the idea that it doesn't matter how much you have because, you know, it doesn't matter whether you have AFib or not. So, um, but uh, it may turn out to be that uh, the more AFib you have, the worse it is. But then those biomarkers may be worse as well. Yeah. Yeah. Preview. Consumption and you know any kind of abnormal heart rate pattern because that's because uh, caffeine consumption is so common mm -hmm. um, and excessive caffeine consumption is, is so common. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know for sure. I think there's some evidence that it increases like TSVT and certain you know tachycardias, but not necessarily atrial fibrillation. But I can't swear to that, and um, I need to look into that. I think that's an interesting point. I don't know if anybody else knows more about it. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, uh, I mean, that's a good question. There's, it's not clear that there's really any difference in terms of the stroke that occurs. I mean, with the exception that, so lacunar strokes, right, small deep infarcts, usually you're going to get loss of strength, sensation, or coordination, the kind of elementary neurologic functions. You usually don't get cognitive problems, aphasia, neglect, and so forth. Those would be hemispheric. So if somebody has a pure motor syndrome, pure sensory, ataxic hemiparesis, those are typically not going to be cryptogenic. Um, <clears throat> but that said, they can be. And so you can't tell from the stroke. The stroke is due to the damage to the brain. As I showed you, it could be large, it could be small, could be you know, brainstem, could be higher up. Um, so their rehab needs may, may not differ a whole lot, I guess I would say. Sorry if we just wasted your time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's um, uh, prevalent rate, uh, general population, among general population having PFOs, uh, 20 to 25%. Uh, there's one way to see the true correlation between the stroke and uh, I mean, the PFO uh, uh, causing stroke would be to look at uh, what would be the percentage of Yeah, so I didn't go over that. Those studies have been done. You know, th those were done back in the 90s and stuff. Um, many different studies showed that about 40% uh, of stroke patients have PFO versus 20, 25 in the general population. So it is increased, and that's why people argue it increases your risk. But the important point there is that, as you said, 20, 25% in the normal population, which means a lot of people with stroke and PFO, the PFO is incidental. And that's why that ROPE study tries to isolate out those in whom the PFO could have been the cause because they didn't have other, other causes. And it's, um, 
Bayesian, a little bit of fancy statistics to, to arrive at those numbers that I showed you, but that's how it works. PFOs are also more common in people with unexplained stroke than in people with explained stroke. So if you look at lacunar stroke patients, they'll be less likely, you know, they'll, they'll probably have the same prevalence of PFO as the healthy population. Patients with um, other types or unexplained stroke are more likely to have a PFO, which again suggests that the PFO is causative in, in some people. Does that make sense? Yeah. So uh, we have patients coming in from lots of different uh, centers referred to both uh, Rust and to uh, Belgium. You know, as the accepting physician, can you give us any advice in terms of what they, how extensively once you would look for atrial fibrillation? Hmm. You know, if you have somebody in, have an implant for three years, that's probably the gold standard, but hmm. is there anything we should be saying? Should we respond to our cardiologist giving opinion? Should we respond to a guy saying, you know, what, what, why you do this? Or? So uh, that's a good question. I have found, you know, as, from the neurology side of it, what we've seen is that a lot of rehab centers won't take a patient with an external device. We used to like to put in the, um, you know, an MCOT, right, an uh, external monitoring device. Um, and my impression, though, was that the rehabs wouldn't allow that because it created an extra level of, of risk there. You know, they became responsible for it, and they didn't want that. So what we ended up doing was... Um, Initially, you know, my impression was people wouldn't want an external, oh, actually, I'm sorry, my impression initially was that people would not want an implanted device, because, I mean, it's tiny, it's a little incision, you stick it under the skin, but it was still an invasive thing, and, you know, I guess I would think, you know, people generally don't like to have things put in their body. So what we would usually do is wait for people to get out of rehab and then have them wear an external monitor. What I have found is that people prefer the implanted device because they don't have to worry about it. They don't have the wires. They don't have to deal with the shower and stuff like that. It's in there. It's out of their mind, and it's a minor procedure. And so a lot of people have, prefer to do that. So now what we've moved to doing is putting those in in the hospital and sending them to rehab, and these things transmit through wireless. There's nothing that the rehab has to do. Um, if something shows up on it, then uh, you know, they, they presumably would be notified. The cardiologist would notify their regular doctor, you know, and, and then it would get to the rehab, and then they might get treated at that point. I guess my question should have been, if someone doesn't come in with one of those, yeah. so it, well, would, would one say, well, you know, we would call you and say, what would you recommend in this case, or, you know? Sure. Uh, I think that would be great. I, I think um, you could you could do that. You could call a, um, you know, a consult to decide if, if that should be done. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I don't think practice patterns really... Permit that so easily, uh, but I think that would be ideal. So, yes. Uh, and sort of relatedly, for something like calculator, like if your AS PDG uh, risk score is above this, everybody gets statin. Yeah. Is there the same for cryptogenic stroke with like a rope calculator? <laughs> like we should everybody who comes in with cryptogenic stroke, we should rope calculate and then think about putting them on. A so are you doing ASCVD for statins and things like that? Um, usually they already came on statins because yeah. a lot of patients already have stroke. Right. So right. Uh, I am not. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a, a neat idea. We haven't quite gotten to that point with the rope score, I would say. You know, probably the guideline writing committees would say that the data it's based on have certain limitations and, you know, and so forth. We don't have confirmatory study and things like that. So we're not really at the point where it's a formal recommendation to do that, but we use it in that way informally. So as I said, you know, somebody, I mean, the 16-year-old with the stroke, no other cause, it's, it's pretty easy to say the PFO was his problem, I think. You know, somebody who's 50, maybe they do have one risk factor or something like that, a little bit more. But, you know, I use the rope score to say, look, this is what the chance is that the PFO caused your stroke. And this is what your chances of a recurrence in two years. 
And, you know, based on that, I think it would be reasonable to do this procedure or, you know, you have so many other reasons to have a stroke, I wouldn't do it. So we use it in a more informal way at this time. Hopefully that helps. What do you think about Yeah, so isn't that, that's like the next, the next step or, you know, the cardio device you see advertised on TV and, you know, oh, wow, I can find out. So I think that's great. No, yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't wear an Apple Watch, but I know a lot of people tell me about that. That's, yeah, I think that's very cool. So that may change things a lot. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. So we need to study, I guess, what the real impact is on treatment and outcomes. Yeah, that's very cool. Next, next step. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.